This is Guns and Butter. same here. You have to realize that in the North American Union, it would be like the European Union, the difference is there at least they had a chance to do some talking about whether or not they were going to have a European Union. We haven't even been given that opportunity. First of all, everybody lied to us and denied it. It was the Canadian Action Party, this small political party that first started exposing it before our progressive activist movements were doing something about it. Everybody went silent after the 9-11 event. All the progressives went silent. Everybody was afraid to say anything, to talk about anything, to do anything. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Connie Fogel and Professor Kevin Barrett from presentations at the Vancouver 9-11 Truth Conference in June 2007. Today's show, 9-11, Canada, and the New World Order. We begin with Dr. Kevin Barrett's talk, Beyond a Muslim Conspiracy Theory. Dr. Barrett is author of Truth Jihad, My Epic Struggle Against the 9-11 Big Lie. He is editor of 9-11 and American Empire, Volume 2. He is an Arabist and an Islamologist and a political activist and talk show host. He has been a lecturer at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. His talk, Beyond a Muslim Conspiracy Theory was given on June 23, 2007 in Vancouver. Dr. Kevin Barrett. Well, this, uh, this conference is, is all about taking down the, uh, the official myth of 9-11. It is a myth in the sense that it's a sacred story. Uh, as a folklorist, when we look at narratives that are especially narratives passed around informally uh, or orally, but this works for all narratives, we can classify them in basically three ways. They can be either. They can be uh, tales, which are fictional, told as fiction for fun, like Hollywood movies, for example. They can be legends, which involve a debate about belief. Did this really happen? Did you really see a UFO? Did you really uh, see Bigfoot? Did this saint really work a miracle? Or they can be myths. Now, a myth is a sacred story. It's both true and sacred. That is, people who tell it believe it's true and hold it to be sacred. And anybody who questions it is in danger of being called a heretic. And in some societies, they're in danger of being burned at the stake. In others, they're uh, in danger of being tossed into the gulag. Uh, And still in others, they're in danger of being ridiculed as a uh, conspiracy theorist. Well, the myth of 9-11 is no longer functioning as a myth. It was constructed consciously to be a myth. Uh, The core image of the story, the destruction of the Twin Towers and the murder of 3,000 people, was consciously constructed on the model of human sacrifices, which are unfortunately a part of many, though by far from all, the religious traditions of the world. These spectacular sacrificial events somehow trigger uh, a kind of ecstasy in the sense of going beyond the self, and they often form the basis of religious traditions. That's just for an example that you all probably have heard of. Uh, Christianity, uh, a human sacrifice, 
I mean, that's what ultimately is going on here, except, of course, it's, it was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That's, but it's a sacred story. And in many Christian cultures, people who question it would be deemed heretics. Likewise, the 9-11 event was, was scripted, I believe, uh, to have this sacrificial, uh, spectacular image at its core, thereby awaken these, these quote-unquote religious emotions of uh, driving people beyond their normal uh, state of mind, at which point they can be imprinted with a, with a story, and that story then becomes the sacred story, in this case, the, the myth, the official myth of 9-11. Well, my topic today is getting beyond a, a Muslim conspiracy theory, and that means getting beyond the myth of this spectacular human sacrifice supposedly perpetrated by fanatical Muslims. Now, what, what is a Muslim conspiracy theory? Well, uh, just let's, let's think about, let's play around with words, shall we? Sometimes I find it useful when reading the uh, corporate media. When I see the word Muslim or Islam, I think about, well, how would this read if something similar uh, were, were written with the word Jew or Judaism? Uh, in many cases, it would sound very, very offensive to most of the readership of these mainstream media organs. So let's try this. What would be a Jewish conspiracy theory? Well, there are all kinds of them, of course, aren't there? The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, uh, a document that was apparently taken up from a fictional piece of work uh, and then used as alleged proof of a Jewish plot to rule the world. Um, and then we also have other, you know, similar conspiracy theories about Jews. And in fact, the whole notion of, of quote-unquote conspiracy theory has been tied closely to these kinds of theories about Jews. For example, uh, Hofstetter's book, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, which is the book that is most cited by people who are trying to psychologically explain away what we're doing here. How many people have heard of this, The Paranoid Style in American Politics? Okay. Uh, Hofstetter argues that all sorts of quote-unquote conspiracy theorists and marginal fringe populist elements in American politics ultimately boil down to quote-unquote anti-Semitism, that is, or Jewish conspiracy theories that hold that uh, uh, the Jews are out to rule the world and they do these horrible, violent, irrational things and so on and so forth. Well, we have something similar going on now with Muslims playing the role that uh, Jews traditionally used to play. Uh, well, that's kind of interesting, and that does play into this uh, notion of the, the Muslim conspiracy theory replacing the Jewish conspiracy theory on a psychological level. Uh, and this has been heavily prepped in Hollywood for many, many years. In many, many films, uh, Arabs and Muslims have been portrayed as evil, dark-skinned villains, you know, polluting the race, blowing things up, you know, constantly having to be killed off uh, in, in huge numbers by good guys like Chuck Norris and, and uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Jeez, I hope that guy doesn't get elected. I hate to imagine, you know, if Bush is killing, you know, 600,000 Iraqis uh, because they're Arabs and Muslims, I hate to imagine what Schwarzenegger will do. Uh, well, there's this, there, there's a book called Real Bad Arabs, How Hollywood uh, Vilifies a People by Jack uh, Shaheen, and in that book he just goes over this sorry history of literally hundreds and hundreds of examples of these uh, uh, demeaning uh, caricatures and, uh, and stereotypes being applied to, to Arabs and Muslims. And now, of course, we've got the suicide terrorist stereotype being reinforced by this sacred myth of 9-11, which, of course, is no longer a myth because only 14% of the American people believe it, uh, thanks to the work of people like you. 
So the suicide terrorist stereotype, does that have anything to do with reality? That is, is it, is it true that, most, that there, are, there are lots and lots of suicide terrorists out there, and they're mostly fanatical Muslims driven by their religion? The answer, according to uh, our fairly recent book by Robert Pape, who's uh, the director of the University of Chicago Project on Suicide Terrorism, is no. Uh, Robert Pape, in his book, Dying to Win, The Strategic Logic of Suicide Terrorism, points out that there is absolutely no Islamic religious connection to suicide terrorism. Uh, indeed, the vast majority of suicide terrorist incidents are not by Muslims at all. They're by uh, Hindus, Buddhists, uh, atheists, etc., etc. Uh, the world's leading suicide terrorist group is the Tamil Tigers. They happen to be a secularist Hindu group uh, in Sri Lanka. And they're far ahead of anything any Muslims have, uh, have managed to do in this regard. Um, well, what then is the purpose of suicide terrorism? Well, Dr. Pape points out, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, I've never met him, and maybe it's Pape, I don't know. Anyway, he, uh, he argues that they all have a simple, straightforward, secular political goal, which is to expel foreign armies of occupation, and that suicide terrorist acts almost always take place within the occupied territory, and their purpose is to force withdrawal of armies of occupation. Most suicide terrorists are educated, productive members of society, and uh, again, they're driven by political rather than religious goals. So, how did we get this, uh, this connection between Islam and suicide terrorism, when in fact there is no such connection? Well, we've been uh, given a, a myth, and the 9-11 uh, false flag operation was presumably scripted in such a way as to try to drive this myth so deep into the psyche of the American and world population that it would never be dislodged no matter how much evidence were produced against it because that's how myths work, of course. They're sacred narratives. Islam, actually, if you, if you look closely at the debates going on in the Islamic world, I am an Arabist and Islamologist and I try to keep up to a certain extent with what people are saying in the uh, Arab world. And it's pretty clear if you look at the actual debates about suicide terrorism that to the extent that the religion of Islam is playing a role in these debates, it's tending to hinder suicide terrorism. That is, secularists uh, are by and large more likely to justify suicide terrorism than religious Muslims are. And there's a simple straightforward reason for that, and that is of course that the religion of Islam strictly prohibits suicide. So for a relatively religious Muslim to advocate suicide terrorism for a, a political goal, which is what it always is, as we've heard, uh, would, would mean having to value the secular political goal more than the religious tradition. And there are plenty of believing Muslims that do that. If you look at these debates in, in the, uh, like on Al Jazeera, you will see that there are some uh, Muslim uh, scholars, not clerics, there's no clergy in Islam, but there are Muslim scholars who are the closest thing that we have to a clergy who do justify suicide terrorism. But the reason, of course, is what they're, they're saying that the, the, the oppression being meted out against this or that people, the Palestinian people or the Iraqi people, is so horrible that the people who are responding to this with the only way they have of fighting back, which is suicide terrorism, uh, are perhaps, even though they're going against the religious tradition, uh, they're justified in doing so because the situation politically is so extreme. So, 
keeping all of this in mind, let's look at the alleged 9-11 hijackers, the uh, most famous suicide terrorists on the planet. Um, the, the story that we got was that these were fanatical Muslims. Uh, almost all the information about this plot that was put out right as soon as it happened came from one of Mohammed Atta's two magic suitcases. Now, these two magic suitcases, I call them magic because they rather miraculously uh, jumped into the hands of the authorities. One of them in Germany was delivered to the West German, or the German police by a uh, good Samaritan burglar who had found it during his burglary and decided it should be turned over to the authorities. Uh, and in the Der Spiegel book about 9-11, uh, which is, totally toes the line of the official story, they, it, it actually states that uh, the West German police say that this was an intelligence agency that gave them this suitcase, not a burglar. They don't believe the story. The second magic suitcase was uh, discovered uh, after it didn't make the transfer from Mohammed Atta's plane out of Portland, Maine. Uh, he flew to Boston, and then in Boston, he supposedly flew into the World Trade Center, spent an hour in Boston, and during that hour, his, his suitcase supposedly just didn't make the transfer for unknown reasons. And in that suitcase was discovered a very bad parody of an Islamist's, uh, fanatical Islamist's last will and testament. Now, whoever scripted this Muhammad Atta's will uh, ne needed to go back and, and study Islamology a little bit harder because it, it begins, in the name of God, myself, and my family. Now, wait a second. Anybody who's a Muslim here would know that you don't say, uh, you know, bismillah wa bismi wa bisma usrati. That would sound beyond uh, absurd and blasphemous to the Muslim ear. You'd never say anything remotely like this. There's a formulaic expression which is in the name of, uh, in the name of God, the merciful, the compassionate. Bismillah rahman rahim So whoever wrote this thing was beyond ignorant. You know, somebody whose understanding of Islamic basic, you know, not deep religious theosophy, but just, you know, basic what people say to each other every day uh, is, is beyond, you know, it's very, very low. I mean, really, they screwed up incredibly badly there. Uh, and they also, in that, in that suitcase were the names of 19 hijackers and hijacking manuals in Arabic and all sorts of fun stuff like that. Uh, very convenient. Anyway, uh, the point being that uh, this, the notion that Ada wrote a fanatical Muslim will uh, is destroyed the minute you look at the alleged translation of that alleged will. Second, point about these alleged Muslim fanatic suicide hijackers is that when you take a look at what they were uh, up to in Florida as they were allegedly training for 9-11, uh, the whole notion that they were Muslims at all, much less fanatically religious Muslims, falls apart. Daniel Hopsicker has written a book called Welcome to Terrorland about uh, these goings on in Florida. And essentially, I'm going to sum this up very briefly, uh, the basic gist of this is that these guys were, well, they trained in secure U.S. military facilities, including Maxwell Air Force Base Officer School in Alabama and Pensacola Naval Air Station in Florida, where Ada was a frequent visitor to the Officers Club, where he dined with, uh, with officers. Uh, Ada was pretending to learn to fly at a flight school that had uh, basically gone out of business as a real flight school a year before 9-11, purchased by uh, characters with ties to international drug smuggling and the CIA, and it, it became a drug import airstrip, and they ceased to have any interest in, uh, in making money as a flight school. So they pretended to train Arabs to fly and brought in uh, drugs uh, on 
Air America, apparently, during that, that run-up to 9-11. And Ada was being paid off uh, very well for his, you know, the role he was playing. He was running around with stacks of $100 bills, visiting lap dancers and prostitutes. Uh, he had all the CIA cocaine he could snort, apparently. He would dispense cocaine to everybody in his presence. And he spent most of his time in lap dance clubs, flying to Las Vegas for more debauchery with these other alleged hijackers. Um, and uh, doing other things like, as Tarpley said last night, uh, disemboweling kittens when he was, when he was mad at his uh, prostitute girlfriend. So I, I think if you read Hopsicker's book and take a look at some other sources that confirm it, including the Wall Street Journal and, and so on, you'll, uh, you will know this very quickly, that the alleged connection between uh, fanatical Muslims and the, the alleged perpetrators of 9-11 uh, is flimsy indeed. If you go on and look at the evidence that there were actually any hijackings at all and whether any of these people were actually on these flights, you'll see that the evidence for that is equally flimsy. And uh, you will have succeeded in disabusing yourself of the, uh, the myth of 9-11, which at this point is only believed by 16% of the American people. Uh, but it's, it's useful to, to get enough facts under your belt so you can argue with those 16% if you ever happen to run into them. You've been listening to author and lecturer Dr. Kevin Barrett, Beyond a Muslim Conspiracy Theory, from the Vancouver 9-11 Truth Conference. We next hear from the leader of the Canadian Action Party, Connie Fogel, on the Security and Prosperity Partnership and the North American Union. Today's show, 9-11, Canada and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. I'm very pleased to be here. And one of the most satisfying aspects, though, of this weekend is the, the, the feeling, the atmosphere, the spirit that's here. It gives me a lot of hope because I, it's not just the speakers, but it's the people, all the people that are here. There's no competitiveness. There's just a... There's just a sense of uh, learning and understanding and trying to, to do something, to move ahead together. And that's, uh, that gives me a lot of hope. It gives me a lot of hope. None of us can do anything alone. Each of us can do a lot together. This is what we're all saying. Um, in eight days, we're going to have Canada Day. A year ago... I wrote a statement, and I picked it up and looked at it yesterday, and it's still so relevant. So I'm going to read it as a beginning to what I'm talking about today. The only difference is that since then, in the last couple of months, Peter Julian of the NDP has begun to be able to do things in Parliament. He's, he's taken a couple of steps that have been useful uh, in, in opposition to the North American Union. It's a long time coming. Um, but but there is there's a little bit of movement there, and the movement there is because, I, you know, I think that Peter Julian is actually struggling within his own party. There's a lot of good people everywhere, you see, and I think he's struggling within his own party to be able to do the things that we're calling on the elected people to do, and he's he needs the support. Um, everybody anywhere who's doing whatever they're doing, especially in official positions. 
um, need our support and we need to recognize that there are good people in the military, there are good people in Congress, there are good people in, that are in members of parliament, there are good people in our cities, there are good people in our provinces, there are good people in all the parties. The problem is there's maybe a fear amongst them, uh, there's a, certainly a control coming down from above, in the, the political parties uh, crack the whip and don't allow people to speak out. Um, but the strength of a movement like the 9-11 Truth Movement and all the globalization activities that have ever existed and the, the power of the existence of the Canadian Action Party is precisely that it's a pressure point on the people who are in positions to be able to do the job that some of them do want to do. But remember, as soon as you back off, as soon as any of us back off, they'll stop. So we have to remember the power is in the movement of people here and the Canadian Action Party is no more than a vehicle for you. The voice of the Canadian Action Party has been responsible for propelling a lot of the people in significant positions to be able to or even to want to begin to take some stands. Let me say this, I'll read to you what I wrote last year. But be still, O Canada, my Canada. There are many who will not go silent into this night. So July 1st, 2006, do not ask for whom the bell tolls, O Canada, it tolls for thee. There is no joy this July 1st, 2006. To call it Canada Day is now a sad hypocrisy. That is because all the members of Parliament and our MLAs are complicit in the unfolding transformation of Canada without Canadians' informed consent. From a sovereign nation, independent and free, to a part of a new entity, in a North American union, stripped of civil liberties and ruled by corporate greed. Launched under international trade in a format of free trade agreements, the transformation is almost completed economically and is in high gear now in the fields of defense, justice, immigration, health, and foreign affairs. A binational planning committee is in high gear integrating Canada and the USA militarily. Various committees are in high gear implementing two nation-breaking agreements, both of which adopted the agenda and direction of the chief executive officers of the elite corporations of North America and driven by a powerful world elite. The first of the nation-breaking agreements is the Smart Border Declaration of December 2001 under the Liberals, signed by John Manley as Deputy Prime Minister and Tom Ridge of the USA Homeland Security Department. From this agreement flowed an integrated immigration and border control, and most importantly, anti-terrorist legislation that began the legal, judicial, and policing integration of Canada with the USA, removing civil liberties. This was accomplished via what appears to be the gravest travesty of justice in North America, namely the deception surrounding the destruction of the Twin Towers in New York, September 11th, 2001. Canada has failed to demand a proper and full inquiry, 
submitting instead to the highly questionable official U.S. position, which numerous respectable authorities now assert is verifiably wrong. The second is a Security and Prosperity Partnership Agreement signed by the Liberals under Paul Martin in March of 2005 with George Bush of the USA and President Fox of Mexico. The goal is total North American integration by year 2010. Then subsequently they've said maybe 2007 and I think the integration is much more advanced than most of us realize. David Emerson, the only re-elected one of the three senior liberal ministers responsible for piloting the implementation of the North American Union under the Paul Martin government, moved comfortably over to a senior conservative cabinet position under Harper to continue the job. In March 2006, Prime Minister Stephen Harper met with Mexico's President Fox and U.S. President Bush in Cancun, Mexico, to escalate the integration of the three nations into one corporate-driven bloc. They launched the North American Competitiveness Council. They actually put together a number of people who were going to sit on the right-hand side of the leaders of these countries to tell them what to do. The council comprises 30 senior private sector representatives, 10 from each country, and has a mandate to provide governments with recommendations on broad issues such as border facilitation and regulation, as well as the competitiveness of key sectors including automotive, transportation, manufacturing, and services. The Council meets annually with security and prosperity ministers and will engage with senior government officials on an ongoing basis. The Competitiveness Council is an initiative of the Security and Prosperity Partnership of North America. On June 13, 2006, Prime Minister Harper announced the Canadian membership of North American Competitiveness Council. He proudly said the Canadian members of the Competitiveness Council are Dominique D'Alessandro from Manulef Financial, Paul Damara Jr. from Power Corporation of Canada, David Gannong from Gannong Brothers Limited, Richard George from Suncor Energy Inc., Hunter Harrison from CN, Linda Hassenfratz from Linamar Corporation, Michael Sabia from Bell Canada Enterprises, Jim Shepard from Canfor Corporation, Annette Verschuren from Home Depot, and Rick Waugh from Scotiabank. These are your political leaders, unelected, unaccountable. I am delighted, Harper said, that these accomplished individuals have agreed to apply their considerable private sector expertise to help us identify and pursue initiatives that will create a more competitive North America. First, we had Paul Martin's liberal-led minority government, at the time sustained by the NDP, and now we have Stephen Harper's conservative-led minority government sustained by the Bloc Québécois. These have rung the death knell for the public interest and the public good. Two elections, 2004 and 2006, held in the middle of this transformation, in the middle of this transformation, saw not one of the mainstream parties nor any mainstream media profile this death dance. And still, they are silent.
it was Mussolini who equated corporatism with fascism. The leading lights directing current government come from the corporate world, a world with no soul, no heart, no morality, no conscience, no justice. But be still, O Canada, my Canada. There are many who will not go silent into this night. We join hands in common chorus and direction with those of the USA and Mexico who champion the interests and the life force of humanity. We salute and celebrate the universal truths of justice, liberty, and equality, which bedeck the path forward to independence and sovereignty. You're listening to the leader of the Canadian Action Party, Connie Fogel, on the Security and Prosperity Partnership and the North American Union. Today's show, 9-11, Canada and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. This meeting, this, 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 this weekend, has addressed all of the issues that I've been talking about for some time, and it addressed them really, really well. And we have many members of the Canadian Action Party who are here. Um, at our convention uh, last year, we, 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 we passed a resolution um, requested by which we, we requested our, our, our government to open an official inquiry into the 9-11 uh, issue, the 9-11 event. And, of course, the response that we get always is, uh, oh, that happened in the States. We have no jurisdiction. It has nothing to do with us. Uh, and I think there, there, there's a very real analysis somebody should do at some point, I hope, to um, be able to establish just where the complicity of the Canadian officials or government at the highest levels had some involvement if they did. But certainly the flow and the reaction from the 9-11 incident in Canada, the United States and Australia and Great Britain with the anti-terrorism law that came down and such oppressive liberty stripping mechanisms um, so quickly um, indicate the highest levels of the government people in all those countries uh, were not prepared to really ask questions, and they continued to refuse to ask questions. Um, it's impossible that these nations could have put together the kind of complicated, sophisticated, liberty-stripping legislations that were the anti-terrorism laws in just a couple of weeks. And we saw one somebody, one of the speakers yesterday talked about the, uh, the, the Patriot Act being on the books for a long, long time in the United States, and uh, finally they were able to release it. Um, the, the disgrace in Canada is that there was not one member of parliament that voted against the anti-terrorist legislation. Um, in fairness to, to the Canadian government, um, they have in this past year made some changes on the security certificates, which are, the, are one of the mechanisms that deal with uh, the removal of habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is simply the responsibility and the right of uh, your jailer to, to bring you out of jail, bring you to the public uh, within a certain period of time. And uh, under the Patriot Act and under our anti-terrorism legislation, uh, people are picked up and put away and they don't, they've, they've lost the right of habeas corpus. It's, um, it's very difficult for a lot of these people who are arrested 
um, for the longest time, right after, anti, after the anti-terrorist legislation in Canada was implemented, we didn't even know how many people were, had been arrested. Um, just about all of them who were arrested were subsequently released and no charges were ever laid. The smart border declaration that came into existence um, in December of 2001, just a couple of months after the 9-11 incident in September, uh, was, a, was a far-ranging agreement, an arrangement between John Manny, who was at that time the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada in a, in a Liberal government, with Tom Ridge, the Homeland uh, Security, what, I forget the name of the, the group in the States, who simply came together and, 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 and did sign an, a, a document that, that uh, sets out a whole bunch of, of a great agenda that they had and many things that, they were, that were going to happen in the two countries that they were going to be bringing into place to secure the perimeters to make North America safer, quote, safer, not safe for you and me. Um, one of the speakers who was supposed to be here apparently has been identified on, the, on Canada's new no-fly list and isn't here. That no-fly list, the concept of a no-fly list, let's just realize in, in the Western world, the concept of our justice system is innocent until proven guilty. This no-fly list is an absolute reversal. We're now guilty until we prove ourselves innocent. Where is the uproar? Where, you know, what happens with this, this, this imp this integration process is everything is done piecemeal and so that nobody really feels the full impact of its horror because it's done in bits and pieces. At some point, eventually, the totality of the police state apparatus is going to hit us and we're going to say, how did this happen? Um, the NDP did make a little statement, apparently press release, uh, and then they spoke out against the no-fly list, but where were they when, they talked, when it came up before Parliament a year ago? Um, why, have they, why have they not come out? Why, why are they not moving us in the streets? Um, the, the Green Party, I don't know what their position is on the no-fly list. I haven't heard it. Um, I don't know what their position is on the anti-terrorist legislation. I haven't heard it. I know that they have, they have at their last meeting, taken a position uh, to abrogate NAFTA. But then in the next line right after, they say, however, if there are negotiations, these are the things we want. We want the Section 11 removed and we want this and this and this, which basically is a statement. They're really prepared to negotiate NAFTA. You don't negotiate NAFTA. Nobody has negotiated NAFTA. That's been the position of, the, of, of, uh, of a lot of the, uh, the progressives in uh, North America and, and the NDP line. Even though the membership says we want out of NAFTA, um, you don't, who's going to negotiate? The guys who've got this in place, they've got everything. Who would ever give up everything when they've already got everything? And the process, the implementation process of, of the NAFTA arrangement, and then, the, which is, and then all that's happening now is an expansion of NAFTA into the other areas. NAFTA was the economic, now we're going into the military, we're going into the, uh, the, the, the um, social system, we're going into the, the foreign affairs system, we're going into all aspects of how a nation is run. All of that implementation, all of that process uh, is growing and is being done incrementally and um, is not going to be negotiated. And so when even some people say, and when they're finally started talking about the Security and Prosperity Partnership Agreement, which everyone was denying was even happening, when they finally start talking about it, they're using words like negotiating. Well, let's, and even some of the language that comes forward by the NDP in Parliament, uh, um, or, or even people in our municipalities that are talking against TILMA, the Trade and Investment Labor and Mobility Agreement, which is the municipal equivalent of NAFTA, only it fills in all the holes that NAFTA had left. They talk about negotiating. There's, these agreements have nothing to do with negotiation. These are part of the actual plan for restructuring North America and, and then subsequently the world. It was 
pastor, and again, one of the speakers showed in one of the videos talked about um, the, a statement made by pastor who was one of the biggies, you know, and then moved to the North, New World Order. NAFTA was the first step of a new constitution of North America. Let's get that very clear. Finally, after all these years, can we not have leaders in this country that are acknowledging that NAFTA is a first step to a new world order? And let's get rid of, of this hypocrisy and this pretense as, uh, as a, the people of, the, of, of our community, the people of Canada have been saying so long, so many progressives, it's bad, it's bad, and outline all the harmful things, um, but the leaders absolutely refuse to do something. And therefore, therefore, we have the Canadian Action Party, which is it's just a vehicle. It's an alternative legal registered party in Canada it is here only because no other legal registered political party in Canada is taking the position on issues that many of us want to be taken. We have a clear position, abrogate NAFTA. We have a clear position, if you don't control the creation and issuance of your money, you have no power. And again, when are the leaders of our respective countries going to accept and acknowledge and read history and find out about the fact that it doesn't matter who sits there elected by us if there's somebody else that controls the creation and issuance of money because that somebody else has all the power. When are they going to finally start acknowledging that? And don't think for one minute, the business of the Amero, those of us in Canada who understand the power of, the, of, of our precious jewel of a Bank of Canada. Those of us have been trying for a long time, and they're not only people in the Canadian Action Party, but other organizations that talk about the power of the Bank of Canada. We're one, about the one, maybe the re, one remaining place in the world that already has an instrument that exists. It's right there. We don't have to have any great big struggles uh, with other, a whole bunch of politicians uh, about creating a new something. We have an instrument, a legal instrument, it's called our Bank of Canada. It has all the power and authority in the Bank of Canada Act to be used to deliver all the economic needs of a nation without the weight and the burden of perpetual debt that's imposed on us by the banking system and the financial elite. Yeah. <laughs> When are we going to have politicians that recognize that power that's available, that exists right now for us, the people, to use? And the Amero, like they don't talk very much about the Amero, but, but just remember that the, the single currency is something that's coming, that's part of the plan. It's one of the things they really keep silent because they probably realize that this is the one that maybe people would, would react the most to. Certainly the Canadians those of us who understand about monetary control and understand about the power of our Bank of Canada. But that Amero will probably be run under the um, uh, Federal Reserve, but maybe not. Maybe even the Federal Reserve will change, which is a private institution. No accountability. It's not federal and, it's no, and it has no reserves. 
that, you know, the power of the, 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 a central currency that's to run and operate between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico is coming. It's, it's, there, it's on their agenda. I've been told that uh, a coin even is already in existence someplace in some, some bank in the States. Um, you see, what they do, and it's the same that happened in the European Union, they sell all this stuff to us in, in bits and pieces, and on, at one level, it kind of looks good. Well, if we have a single currency, it'll be really easy to move back and forth. And then Canadians, our dollar will be equal. We won't have a, a dollar of lower value than that of the United States. So it'll just be easier to flow back and forth. And it's nice and easy to travel in Europe, you know, with the, with the, with the euro. You know, you don't need to worry about changing your currency. Yes, it has those kind of, uh, that kind of an advantage. Um, but in, 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 in the European Union, there is a, a central bank but no nation has any authority and control over it. That bank dictates all the economic decisions of what's to happen in Europe. And it is an offense for any nation to ask any question of what that central bank is doing. There are representatives from the areas of Europe to that bank, but they're not representatives from the elected people, they're representatives from respective banks who go and talk about what they're going to do in terms of running the money and the financial situation of, of Europe. It would be the same here. You have to realize that in the North American Union, it would be like the European Union, the difference is there at least they had a chance to do some talking about whether or not they were going to have a European Union. We haven't even been given that opportunity. First of all, everybody lied to us and denied it. It was the Canadian Action Party, this small political party that first started exposing it before our progressive activist movements were doing something about it. Everybody went silent after the 9-11 event. All the progressives went silent. Everybody was afraid to say anything, to talk about anything, to do anything. You're listening to the leader of the Canadian Action Party, Connie Fogel on the Security and Prosperity Partnership and the North American Union. Today's show, 9-11, Canada and the New World Order. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. To, to fully appreciate the implementation progress and the way they do these things to us in bits and pieces uh, uh, so that we think that something is good. People say, well, there's no fly list. And I've heard people say this to me, well, gosh, if somebody's really a bad guy and he might be going to blow up the plane, I don't want him to be on the plane. <laughs> it's like the woman who said, oh, I know, it's terrible to give up your liberties and everything, but you know, I have to give up my liberty to be free. <laughs> and, and, you know, we laugh at that, but you, you have to appreciate, um, there's a psychology at work here that may, causes people to think in those stupid kinds of ways, to confuse people. There's an Orwellian doublespeak out there, and, and a lot of what's talked about in, in, these, in, these, uh, in these presentations and the various videos about 9-11 in the 9-11 Truth Movement address that kind of issue. And, and so one of the most important things is to, is to be able to recognize the, the doublespeak and to recognize whenever they, they do any of these bits and pieces as they are presenting uh, the, the restructuring to us, for us to attack and to ask the question and to demand uh, a, a full exploration of what's really involved with it. Not to be afraid, not to dare to challenge, not to dare to think. It's most important. The most important Something all of us must do as we're faced with the weight and oppression of the new world order that's being orchestrated. 
We must not abandon our power to think and to question and to analyze. Let's pay more attention to making use of the powers that we do have to learn how to control, to fight back in our brain power against the control of our minds. That is our weapon. That is our power. And the second thing is to pay attention to the fear factor, to realize that the control over all of us is fear. And yes, when you're here, even like in this kind of event, and you, and you listen to people who are really informed and really know what's going on, and they talk to you, and they tell you stuff that's happening, it's very easy to, to really feel overwhelmed. And especially the young people. I've had so many young, you, you know, people in their late, late teens and early 20s who are really beginning to ask, to ask questions and think, I mean, their world, their future, not very comfortable. But the important thing is to realize that yes, it's uncomfortable. Yes, we must face it. And once we face it, it means we have to then go another direction. It demands and commands in us a transformation. But the most important thing are those two aspects of control that we exercise over ourselves. Keep our brain thinking clearly. Don't lose its control. Keep our heart and our soul full of hope. Don't succumb to the fear. Don't succumb to the fear. That's their power. Let me read to you um, another something that I wrote, how 9-11 changed everything in Canada. I said this, and I say this, the lifeblood of Canada is being drained and replaced with the cold blood of a military, industrial, financial elite who lust for unlimited power and profit. Is this what you want? The excuse for it is a story full of contradictions and lies. The event of 9-11 was the trigger to justify the end of Canada as we have known it and loved it and wanted it to be. 9-11 is the reason for sending our sons and daughters to spill their blood in a foreign land for U.S. control of the world's dwindling oil supply. 9-11 is the trigger to justify a permanent North American war economy to line the pockets of weapons manufacturers. 9-11 is the trigger to starve to death our social programs like medical care, education, unemployment insurance, old age security, pension plans. 9-11 is the trigger to justify the total restructuring of the administration of Canada not under the direction of our elected parliament, but under the dictates of the military, industrial, financial elite of North America. 9-11 is the trigger to justify the end of even a pretense of rule by the electorate, and instead to transfer control of our lives to tribunals, unelected by us, unaccountable to us, unrepresentative of us, with no way for us to remove them or challenge them or to defend our interests. 9-11 is the trigger to justify a police state, 
a birth-to-death surveillance system to track us and to prevent our descent. Compulsory ID, recording our fingerprints, our eye prints, our personal and financial information, passports and driver's license to get in and out of our own country, and within our country, among provinces, tracking devices in our vehicles, our phones, our clothes, and ultimately, our bodies. 9-11 is the trigger to justify fingerprinting of our children in our schools and vaccination of our children in our schools without the knowledge or consent of the parents. Access to healthy food, to supplements and medicines are under attack to enrich pharmaceutical and chemical conglomerates, taking away regulations that protect consumers, imposing rules that harm us, for example, compulsory and improperly tested vaccinations with God knows what's inside them, criminalization of herbal and vitamin use. 9-11 is the trigger to justify increased taxes to pay for this infrastructure to imprison us. All this is based on the official tale of 9-11, now exposed by a long list of physicists, engineers, and career military people who have proven that the official story violates the laws of physics, of logic, and common sense. All this brought in and about under the direction and cooperation of our prime ministers and their cabinets under both liberal and conservative party regimes with no opposition by the NDP or the Bloc Québécois or the Rising Greens. Now I did say at the beginning the NDP has finally started to do a couple of things in Parliament. However, it's only beginning because the pressure's been there because this party and people like you, the truth movement of the 9-11, are pushing their backs to the wall. We have to continue. We have to understand that the new world order restructuring is in process right now, and it's not enough. It's actually not enough just to elect a lot of members of Parliament to Canada that from the Canadian Action Party, unless the Canadian Action Party representatives fully understand that it's not just getting us there, whether or not it's proportional representation or first-past-the-post procedure. The problem, the rot in our system, is that the administration of our government is all done by officials. The very fact that there can be this implementation without even a lot of matters going to Parliament, it's just all being done by officials, tells us that we're already run and ruled by unelected, unaccountable people who are officials who no longer who no longer apply a sense of duty and responsibility to the common good and to the public interest. They used to have to take an oath to swear allegiance to the common good and to protect that common good, and they used to do a really good job, the officials. Now, they move back and forth between industry and government, and there's always the industry, industry that they're serving. But I can tell you this, one of the other things I've done as, as a lawyer by profession, I've, I've spearheaded three lawsuits in Canada that all attacked the globalization process. And they, we went as far as the Supreme Court of Canada on one of them, it was always difficult with money and so on. But the Justice Department lawyers knew that the arguments that we had were sound and they would tell our lawyer, it's about time somebody started attacking that overweening power that's being exercised by the Prime Minister's office, by the officials, and it's about time somebody started challenging it because it's wrong and it's illegal. And I can tell you something else. 
um, when there was the Free Trade Area of the Americas meeting that was taking place in Kananaskis in, I forget what year it was, a few years ago, uh, after we'd been in Quebec uh, um, after the Free Trade Area of the Americas meeting and there was a fence and we did a legal challenge there, the lawyers were really worried that we were, that, that we were going to start another lawsuit in advance to, to try to prevent them from keeping the protesters away. And they called our lawyer and they wanted, they were trying to pick his brain saying, what arguments are you going to use? What, what, what are the things that you're going to do? You know, so there are roots legally that's still available, but the problem is, my worry is, um, some of the challenges that are going even to NAFTA on legal process, the lawyer, the, the courts are beginning to rule in some cases, well, it's beyond our jurisdiction. So that tells us we cannot rely on the legal system, even though I'm, I'm, I feel pretty, pretty, pretty confident that, that when a lot of the challenges go forward, as one will on the no-fly list, that we're going to win on some of those. But we shouldn't be put, it's wrong for us to be put in that position with everything turned on its head, where we have to start from square one all over again to go back to try to get our rights that, we're that we've accumulated over eight centuries? It's just wrong. Wrong for the no-fly list perpetrators to say, well, it's all right, there's a system in place. You can, you know, there's somebody you can go to a tribunal to, to, to get yourself off and work through it. It's wrong to have to spend your money to get a lawyer, to spend your time to go through the agony and lose all the whatever you lose because you can't fly. It's wrong to have everything turned upside down on its head. And it's just absolutely wrong, 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 wrong that we don't have the government brought down. We have a minority government situation. Why isn't there an election fought right now on the New World Order on the North American Union implementation in Canada? I want to end with a quote from Mahatma Gandhi. And this is for all of us who, you know, listening to all the things on this weekend. When I despair, I remember that all through history, the ways of truth and love have always won. There have been tyrants and murderers, and for a time, they can seem invincible. But in the end, they always fall. Think of it, always. been listening to the leader of the Canadian Action Party, Connie Fogel, on the Security and Prosperity Partnership and the North American Union. Today's show has been 9-11, Canada, and the New World Order. Connie Fogel is headquartered in Vancouver, British Columbia. The Canadian Action Party has made the need for a new 9-11 investigation its highest priority in its election platform. The party's website is www.canadianactionparty.ca. We also heard from Professor Kevin Barrett on Beyond a Muslim Conspiracy Theory. Dr. Barrett is author of Truth Jihad, My Epic Struggle Against the 9-11 Big Lie. He is the founder of the Muslim-Jewish Christian Alliance for 9-11 Truth at www. Dot M-U-J-C-A dot com. Audio for today's program, courtesy of Hamouk and Ken Jenkins. 
Complete video of the Vancouver 9-11 Truth Conference is available at their website, www.911tv.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of the show, email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net. That's F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at gunsandbutter.net. Or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Please.